Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chipwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we will be talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League, the long-awaited, much-demanded Snyder cut of 2017's Justice League has undergone quite a transformation. It was released on HBO Max this past Thursday. And uh, my reviews on the site, we've already written about the film from a bunch of different angles, but Adam and I are going to dive in because Adam sort of represents what I feel is sort of the majority opinion, which is that the film is is not bad, actually. You know, it's got it's got its upsides. Whereas I feel the film is sort of inherently flawed and in a way that I hate, like a a hater and a faker. Um, (laughs) Matt Goldberg, senior faker editor. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to be diving into sort of these dueling opinions over the film. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, we will be going to spoilers bit. So, you know, carve out four hours of your day and, and, and watch it to have an opinion. Uh, but let's let's dive into the Snyder Cut uh, just as a bit of background, I guess, in case you need it. The original sort of back in, gosh, I, I don't know when Man of Steel got greenlit, probably 2011. Yeah, 2011, 2012. 2012. And this was going to be a radically new take on Superman. Uh, Christopher Nolan was executive producing and Man of Steel was a, you know, whatever you think about it is a very different kind of Superman film. It's trying to sort of play Superman in sort of a realistic context. And interestingly, I mean, even before Zack Snyder comes into it, that was born of Christopher Nolan and David S. Goyer. So that yes. Man of Steel was the brainchild of David S. Goyer, the co-writer of Batman Begins. He worked on the story for all three Dark Knight trilogy films. Um, and this was his take on Superman and Christopher Nolan kind of walked him into Warner Brothers, let him pitch and was like, I will produce this. I will vouch for it. I'm not making you any more Batman movies, but I will help you make a new Superman movie. Right. And then they sort of, Warner Brothers is a studio with a lot of loyalty to a sort of a handful of directors. It's sort of why it's like, well, why do they keep asking Guy Ritchie to direct things? Well, because he's made hits for them. Like he made Sherlock Holmes movies for them. And so Zack Snyder had made 300 and Watchmen and Sucker Punch. Like Warner Brothers was his home basically. And so they, they settle on Zack Snyder to direct Man of Steel. Man of Steel is released. It's kind of divisive. And it also, more importantly, underperforms at the box office. Now, that's not to say it was a flop. It was not a flop. However, Warner Brothers had a certain target in mind of what they wanted the film to hit, and Man of Steel didn't make, didn't reach it. So the studio kind of goes into a bit of a panic mode, especially because by 2013, when Man of Steel was released, Marvel, which is they see as their competitor in the superhero world, has already released The Avengers, which made $200 million on its opening weekend, setting a record at the time. So they're seeing Marvel cranking out these superhero films that are becoming hit after hit and doing it with lesser known characters like Thor and Iron Man. Like, how is that happening? So Warner Brothers sort of hits the gas on saying like, okay, well, we need an interconnected universe of superheroes of our own. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to build to a Justice League movie. And rather than do a second Man of Steel movie, what we want is a movie that brings in Batman. Uh, In the comics, Batman and Superman team up. It's called World's Finest. 
Uh, so that was a line of comics that was not a new idea. It was just something that was popular from the comics. Uh, you and I were in the room at Comic-Con when they announced mm. that it would be, you know, world's finest. Of course, I don't think they had titled it Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice at that time. Yeah, it was just a, they unveiled this logo with the Batman bat signal and then the Superman logo in the middle of it. And like literally people were crying behind us. That was like a top five Comic-Con moment of just like the crowd going nuts. Yeah, no, the crowd went wild. And keep in mind that up to this point, now there actually had been years prior the plans for a Batman versus Superman movie directed by Wolfgang Peterson, but that sort of fell apart just in the way that George Miller was going to direct a Justice League movie at one point, and that fell apart. And you can read the history of the Justice League movie on Collider. Adam did a great write-up of that film that never was. But the idea is to do Batman v Superman dawn of justice and that will take you into justice league and then what happens is Zack snyder is Zack snyder he doesn't sort of change his approach after man of steel he uses the fallout from man of steel the, the following conversations like wow a lot of people seem to die in that final battle and using that as a springboard to be like well why would batman be against superman and using that as sort of to introduce a darker older Batman played by Ben Affleck, who was riding high from the success of Argo at the time, also for Warner Brothers. And so they bring in Ben Affleck to play, to play Batman. The film is also going to bring in Wonder Woman and it's going to set up, as you can surmise from the title, Justice League. Batman v Superman also underperforms and is kind of not just divisive, but critically reviled. Yeah. It, it, it does not sit well with critics. People find it too dark. They, they say the plot doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like a 20 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a really steep drop off. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very grim. This is a film that Warner Brothers like, this has to make a billion dollars. And it doesn't. It doesn't make a billion dollars worldwide. And so they start panicking even more around this so basically so batman v superman opens in march of 2016 and by this time they're already starting to film justice league because the idea is to get justice league out the following year in their panic they invite what was originally intended to be a small group of journalists into like 40 some odd journalists come to london to tell everyone how well Justice League is going. Now, normally for a set visit, what happens is, is you visit the set and then much closer to the film's release, you will get the set visit reports about like, here's what we saw on the set. So for instance, I went to the set of Godzilla versus Kong in March of 2019. And that set visit coverage ran at the end of this February, because the film comes out at the end of March. That's normally how that works. Warner Brothers like, no, you need to tell your readers now <laughs> that everything is fine on Justice League. So well, got- more than that, that it the tone is lighter. So they mm. brought them specifically to watch the scene where Flash meets Batman. And as you've seen in the Snyder Cut, that's a that's a Zack Snyder scene um, where they're in the Batcave, and you know Ezra Miller is is throwing off jokes. Um, and they also watched them. I think they also saw. Um, them meeting on the rooftop, Jim Gordon. Yes. Although maybe it's possible they just showed them footage of the flash scene and then also had them watch right. the rooftop scene. But both scenes with a lot of levity and like 
if you go back and read that set visit coverage from Collider included and every other reporter that was there, the theme was this movie is fun. This movie is lighter in tone than Batman versus Superman. Do not yeah. be afraid because that was, was the main criticism against Batman versus Superman was that it was punishingly dour. Right. It was damage control. It was damage mm-hmm. control for this big Avenger style team up that Warner Brothers like this one has to succeed. Then the, the so the production continues and then Zack Snyder leaves the project. And at the time it's reported that he's leaving because uh, he suffered a personal tragedy. His, his daughter has committed suicide and the studio is bringing in Joss Whedon to shepherd it to the end. And everyone is in agreement that this is all right. and Good. This is also spin because while yes, Zack Snyder was suffering a personal tragedy. It's clear from recent interviews that he was also kind of being pushed out in a way that um, it's, again, this is all sort of, I think it's sort of a fog of war kind of deal where different things are happening and they're, and they're all kind of, they're all kind of true. He is suffering from a personal tragedy in a recent interview with Vanity Fair. He kind of explained that the studio was very heavily kind of pushing Joss Whedon to have a more active voice in, in the filmmaking and emotionally, Snyder just didn't have it in him to sort of fight back, which, given the circumstances, makes total sense. Yeah, so, Whedon was hired before Snyder left. Whedon had already been hired to rewrite new scenes. But exactly. then uh, I think it's in Anthony Bresnikan's really great reported piece on the history of the Snyder Cut. Um, Zach and that's Snyder, the Vanity Fair piece for those who are Yeah, working. yeah, Vanity Fair piece. Um, not at, like it became clear after that that okay now Warner Brothers actually wants Joss on set to direct some of the scenes and I think Zach was you know he was pushing back on that but a really like feeling you know it was a huge fight and he was also fighting this personal battle at home and that's why he was like I'm I I don't need this in my life right now which I do not begrudge him that at all uh because these movies are you know as we'll get into when we talk about the Snyder Cut, and I promise you, we will talk about the Snyder Cut. Um, yeah, these... this is this, we have to preface this because I, this is part of the arguments that we're going to be making. Yeah, but like the with a budget this large, with characters this important, this is not Zack Snyder's movie. This is Warner Brothers spending money. This is their future IP. This is you know future grosses of future movies and the Flash movie and the Wonder Woman movie. So they are they wield a, a heavy amount of creative control, which it seems like on Batman versus Superman they really let. Uh, Zach loose kind of off the leash and, and kind of do what he wanted. But here in the wake of the Batman versus Superman release, he was already, um, he was fighting a lot. And this had happened even, so like Batman versus Superman came out and I think it was like three weeks until the start of production on Justice League. Zack Snyder has said this, that like during that time they were forced to rewrite the script. So like they were already being asked to adjust what he had originally planned for Justice League in order to lighten the mood or you know make these changes to make Warner Brothers happy. So that's what they went into Justice League shooting. And, mm-hmm. and Zach has talked a lot about um, you know initial, original stuff he had planned that he didn't get to shoot like a romance between Batman and Lois Lane. Warner Brothers was like, no, you can't do that. So right. And and I think this get and this sort of gets to to a main point I have, which is that for all the demands of, you know, release the Snyder cut, this is just not, this is Zack Snyder's true vision for all those demands. It wasn't at some level, you're constantly compromising with the studio. Cause as Adam pointed out, 
This is their baby. This is their, this is a huge IP for them. This has to succeed. This is not the place you go to make a personal vision. Um, when it comes to this level of superhero IP, it just, you don't. And the question is, is can you get something personal in there within the constraints that you're provided? And I think there are some very clear constraints, which is not just what, you know, rewriting the script, but look at how it's been structured. You basically have a team of six characters, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Flash, Cyborg. Half of that team was not introduced really until Justice League. I don't count. I found a quick time file on Lex Luthor's <laughs> computer as an introduction. That is not, that's like, hey, the, that's a teaser of like, hey, these characters are coming up but that's not an origin story by any stretch. And to me, it's like, it's okay. Like to kind of like, and it's not that, you know, Warner Brothers was the first to do that. Hawkeye gets introduced in a bucket in Thor. Like that's how you see <laughs> yeah, him. And it's terrible. And it's terrible, but you know, Hawkeye was not really a central figure. Whereas the story that Zack Snyder was going to tell that we can now see from his, his justice league cyborg was a central figure in that. And Cyborg was going to be introduced to audiences in this movie. And to do that, to introduce him and Aquaman and Flash, you have to keep giving more and more screen time over to those introductions so that the audience cares about these characters and what they're going through and how they come together. And that's a lot of legwork to do that. And so I think it's, it's fair to point out that before cameras even rolled on Justice League, there was a lot of things that were hamstringing Zack Snyder. So I think, you know, when I look at Zack Snyder's Justice League, I see a film where given the constraints he was given, you know, and given what I would suppose no limitations, this is what he would make. And I think in some ways it's strong and in some ways it's fundamentally flawed and weak. And so I think we should, we should get into that after our, after our long prelude. I think that you were a faker. You were a hater. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. I was, you know, I, I so I saw the film, and I sat. I did not take breaks. I did not take chapter breaks. I didn't treat it like a miniseries. I sat through all four hours. And I, a few days prior, I had watched 2017's Justice League, which is a film that I believe has no author. Really, yeah. We know that you know it's, it's it was interesting reading other reviews after after I had published mine and be like you know Joss Whedon did this and this and this and it's like you know I think Joss Whedon was he participated in making a bad film um, and I think it's especially easy to sort of throw Joss Whedon under the bus now that we know of his atrocious personal behavior and unprofessional behavior but we also have to strive for accuracy and the accurate assessment of 2017's Justice League is it's the studio's cut it doesn't really belong to anyone. Mm -hmm. And I think we should, we should just work from there and okay. Okay. That's 2017's cut. It's anonymous and it feels anonymous. You know, I've seen a Joss Whedon movie. I've seen a Zack Snyder movie. I've seen what those films look like and feel like, and 2017's Justice League doesn't really feel like it comes from either of them. It's just feels like studio product, um, you know, built to meet a release date and sort of just exist. And it was no wonder that it flopped. What does surprise me is that, you know, Zack Snyder's Justice League still kind of follows the basic plot beats. Um, and I guess that makes sense. You can't, you know, in terms of reshoots, like how much were they going to reshoot? How much could you change the structure of the film? But I will say that I feel like, again, both films kind of work from 
fundamentally flawed premises and that for all that Zack Snyder adds to his cut, there are certain elements that he cannot escape and also his own sort of storytelling shortcomings, which we'll, we'll get into. Yeah. For a very clear example of, of why this is the case, uh, go to Collider. We have an interview with Holt McCallany from a couple of years ago. He describes so Holt McCallany is in the very beginning of the 2017 cut of justice league. There's that scene where Batman catches the thief. Um, Holt McCallany says that was a whole like comedic scene that was written out. And then the final cut, it was chopped up to bits. So if you think about it as like, oh, this was written as a comedic scene, you go back and watch it now. You can see how they just like removed all the little bits of character. This isn't to say Joss Whedon's version of Justice League would have been any better. But I think that's a just a kind of like, here's a very clear example of evidence showing that like, you know, not everything that Joss Whedon shot or wrote or wanted in the movie even made it into the movie. But you know, as you said, you know, I watched the 2017 cut before watching the Snyder cut. I also feel like it's anonymous. It's super boring. It really has nothing to do with anything. Steppenwolf is one dimensional and boring. The characters are just kind of there. Um, and so I came into the Snyder cut, you know, I, and I said this for years and there was an article that people like to trot out with my byline on it, which is uh, I would love to see the Snyder cut. Here's why it'll never happen. Um, and that was, you know, back when, HBO Max didn't exist. And I was like, you know, Warner Brothers, a major film studio, is not going to invest min- millions of dollars. Well, you should have known that HBO Max was going to exist. Yeah, you should, should have. have. <laughs> you should know the future of what is of, of ATT, AT&T buying Warner Media and then saying, you know, now make now fill our streaming service with content. And that was my bad. Honestly. That was your that bad. That was my bad. <laughs> but like, you know, Warner Brothers were not going to invest tens of hundreds of millions of dollars into finishing this cut to release it in theaters when people who already went to the theater to see the other version didn't like it. Um, Putting it on a streaming service as a draw for subscribers when, you know, the thinking is like, oh, I, I am already signed up for HBO Max or this only cost me $9 to subscribe for a month and I can drop it if I don't want to watch it. Um, Makes more sense. But I've always wanted to see uh, Zack Snyder's like version of Justice League because I thought, I'd rather see a pure unfiltered version of this director's vision than kind of like the studio neutered version of it. I think the ultimate edition of Batman versus Superman is a better movie. Um, and I also rewatched Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman before um, watching the Snyder cut. And I liked the Snyder cut. I, you know, like you, I, I sat there for four hours. Um, I took like a little break in one of the chapters to like make some food, but that was it. Um, it has this kind of like operatic quality to it that uh, I found really compelling and really endearing that also to me set it apart from Batman versus Superman. And grimy that just kind of like thrusts you into the like despair and the dour tone of that whole thing. Whereas Justice League, I feel, you know, again, it's a Zack Snyder film, so it's going to be overly serious. It's going to be very somber in places. Um, but like an opera, there were moments of, I don't know, not necessarily, not necessarily joy, because that's not really Zack Snyder's thing, but uh, kind of like uplift or uh, kind of a coming together. It really felt true to its title in that sense. And at four hours, you know, I felt like you got to know...
people never really got to know Clark Kent or that Superman character. We got one movie, which is an origin story movie. But imagine you go from Batman Begins to like Batman versus, you know, uh, Batman versus Superman. So, you know, you skip like the Dark Knight is such a, a, a key stepping stone in Christopher Nolan's trilogy of getting further getting to know Batman um, that, you know, I felt in Batman versus Superman and in Justice League, this the other character arcs of Aquaman, Flash, uh, less so Wonder Woman because we had her own individual film, um, and Cyborg were just kind of like not really there, so I really had no reason to care about them. And this four-hour cut, you know, yes, it takes an hour and forty-five minutes to get to Flash to show up, but uh, I kind of appreciated that really kind of like novelistic quality to this four-hour cut, where you're like really taking deep dives into specific characters. Um, even the Aquaman stuff I thought was pretty interesting. You know, never mind the fact that I guess there are just Icelandic women who smell sweaters and sing songs whenever you jump into the ocean. And here's the thing. I genuinely like, like that's, that's the thing I keep coming to with sort of looking back on the Snyder Cut is that, you know, there are scenes that when you take them out piecemeal, they're not bad scenes. Like I think them mm -hmm. singing a song about Aquaman, I think that that actually is like, that's, that's a nice moment. I think when um, Hippolyta says the prayer on the arrow that she's going to fire to, you know, warn Wonder Woman, I think that's a nice scene. The issue is, what are you trying to serve? And I think for, and to me, it, it almost feels like Zack Snyder's Justice League is like an extended cut of a better version of Justice League. Where it's sort of like, a, you know, when you watch the extended editions of like Lord of the Rings, it's like, oh, here's a lot of stuff that's nice to have, but you don't need to have it. So it's help, helpful to sort of flesh out the world. But if you're talking about what helps move the narrative along and flesh out the characters in such a way that they become more interesting, like what do you really need? And I feel like, you know, this film doesn't really kill its darlings in a way. Like I think that Zach, Zack Snyder just decided to, like the reason I think it feels like an assembly cut, even though he, he says it's not an assembly cut or may it be not an the reason it feels like it is because so much is included. And this is unreleasable as a film. Like this notion that like, oh, it would go, like, why wouldn't you release this four hour film? And I think even from Snyder's own, Snyder has even said, I would not release this film. I would release a shorter version and then have a director's cut, which I think is kind of double dipping your audience and is how you get the problem of the theatrical cut of Batman v Superman makes no sense, but like, hey, I'll release an ultimate cut and that will give you the benefit of making sense. Like, I don't think, I think that's kind of a crappy way to treat your audience of saying like narrative cohesion, you know, coming soon to, you know, to Blu-ray. Um, but I feel like there's just, there's so much in uh, the new four hour cut that, and I don't feel that all of it's essential. And, and moreover, I feel like some of it is really good, like the cyborg stuff, but also some of it kind of undermines the strengths of the film. So to give you an example, as I wrote about in my review, it's a film that seems kind of like wrestling with notions of grief and loss, uh, the way that Lois is grieving over Superman, the way that uh, Cyborg is grieving over the life that he did have and the loss of his mother. And like, that feels very real. And then like Wonder Woman will bust into a bank and straight up murder all <laughs> these terrorists and be like, human life is precious, but also... I'm going to obliterate Roose Bolton now with my gauntlets. <laughs> yeah. I, so the uh, specifically like the first 30, 45 minutes, I, I really wasn't a huge fan. It felt like just more, more versus additive things. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't disagree. I think, you know, even when Zack Snyder's trying to do something that 
I think in his mind is thematically or plot wise important to the film. He can't help himself of like, wouldn't it be cool if Wonder Woman busted a guy's head open on the wall, even though it is kind of at odds with um, uh, other aspects of the film. But I don't know, to me, you know, this, this four hour film would never be released in theaters. And I think Zack Snyder could have cut a two and a half, maybe three hour version of this film that would have been workable and really good. Um, but I kind of like the idea of just like embrace this unique opportunity. Like it's going on HBO max. There are no limits. I do have all of this stuff. Let me see if it can work. And to my, in my opinion, it works much better than I thought it would. And I actually like this movie better than Batman versus Superman and man of steel. I find it to be more compelling and more satisfying, um, you know, rewatching man of steel. And I used to really like that movie, but it just tonally, I think that movie is all over the place and it cannot reconcile the notion of, or I guess the consequences of all of the destruction. And I know this is something that's been repeated ad nauseum, but you know, to have Superman and Lois have their first kiss on the rubble of a 9-11 style terror attack, literally seconds after these buildings just fell and there must be bodies everywhere. It's just so tone deaf. Um, I like Henry Cavill as Superman. I like the character work that's done in the film, but I, I don't know. On this most recent rewatch, I really didn't like that film at all. Batman versus Superman, I think the Ultimate Edition is better. I think it's still confounding and too complicated for its own good. The Lex Luthor stuff, I think, doesn't really work. And, you know, bringing Doomsday in is just a kind of pointless CG monster. And then you get to Zack Snyder's Justice League. And again, with these four hours, you can do as many Zoom calls with Steppenwolf as you want. And they're kind of endearing. I found the Steppenwolf character really endearing. And, and Vinnie Mancuso wrote a really great essay about the character of, you know, not only is he a bit more dimensional, like the design differences, I can take or leave. It's fine. But there's like a genuine, like he wants to do good, a good job for his boss and he can't do a good job. And he's so upset about it. He's the Dwight Schrute of uh, this movie to his dark side, Michael Scott, who won't even take his calls. I found that endearing. Like there was actually some character stuff in there that I thought like, oh, okay, I kind of understand Steppenwolf now. And it was such a better notion to have him you know, his motivation here is that he so wants to impress his boss that his boss will come to this planet and let him back in to Apocalypse versus the theatrical cut where his motivation is just like, I want to rule worlds. And it's like, okay, I guess. So I find that stuff additive. I find, you know, even like the flash scene with Kirstie Clemens, which I don't think works entirely. Like it's technically impressive. It's tonally confusing. It's a little gross um, and just kind of weird but you're getting the sense that the flash is like learning how to reconcile his powers and all the cyborg stuff. I mean, cyborg is truly the heart of this movie, um, which I, you know, couldn't have imagined how much footage was left on the cutting room for, but all of this character work goes into, and then by the time I get to the third act, when cyborg's father dies, I'm genuinely emotionally like wrapped up in this, which I did not expect to be. And when you get to the very, very end of the film where they fail, where Darkseid arrives, I kind of like, I was very tense. Like I found, I found that scene very effective and I was emotionally wrapped up in the story of these characters, but also in this sequence, which I could not have imagined I would be at the end of like a four hour film, be kind of like that invested in the outcome, even though I kind of know how it ends anyway. But again, to watch Barry Allen learn you know, try out a new power because you, you've seen him throughout the film kind of learning his powers. You know, his motivation is to get his dad out of jail to um, try and change time. 
you know, Cyborg has now this very personal vendetta against Steppenwolf um, and he's doing it, uh, you know, to survive, to prove that he's not a monster, to prove that, you know, he does care about humanity. I don't know. I found all that stuff just really effective. So yes, it's too long. Yes, this never would have hit theaters. Yes, there's stuff in it that, you know, you don't really need, but I found it ultimately um, successful in getting me to like care about what was happening by the end of the film. I don't know. I just feel like that's such. Um, again, if you if you take the 2017 version out of the picture entirely, mm-hmm. and be like, what does this film do? And you're like, well, it gets me to care. I'm like, isn't that a bare minimum? <laughs> like, I am now invested in the story, and I feel like the things that it's adding... I would I disagree with that actually because I've seen so many blockbusters where by the time I get to the third act, I have checked out. Like, I do that's not fair. care about anything that's happening. <laughs> And, and look, I'm not, let me be clear. If you like this film, I'm not trying to like destroy, you know, kill your joy or whatever. Like the movie, I do not care either way what people, you know, if people like it or dislike it. But, you know, I feel that, you know, what's added to this film is also constantly undermined. So for instance, this film begins with this, you know, death rattle of Superman and this notion that like his loss you know, spreads out beyond the, you know, to the entire world and out into the cosmos. And like, that's sort of the earth shaking power of grief and loss. And yet the film then proceeds to treat Superman as like, well, we need a weapon. And that, so Superman, it's not that we lost a good man who's an inspiration and will lead us. We lost basically our, our heavy hitter who can beat up Steppenwolf. And we need him back because we need someone to beat up Steppenwolf. And to me, like that's, you've now undermined this humanity with this sort of practical consideration of like, well, we got it, like how we got to have Superman back because he can punch really good. And so, you know, by the time Superman is back in his black costume for no reason other than the black costume was used when Superman was brought back in the comics because it would help sell comic books, but now it doesn't mean anything. I mean, he went back to his red and blue costume after two months in the comic. Like that's like this notion that this black costume is something special is that it's not, but it looks cool, whatever. And he shows up at the end and like, there's not a lot of joy. It's just like, you know, thanks for getting in on the punch in Superman. <laughs> and I just, I feel like Zack Snyder does not really understand. Like he sees Superman as kind of a problem to be solved rather than a character to be embraced. Um, and then there are just other elements that I think sort of filter throughout. So like, yes, Steppenwolf now has motivation and I agree. Vinny's article is great and very humorous, but at the end of the day, like the film is like, yes, he, he has motivation, but also he's a lackey, you know? And so it's trying to have it both ways. It's like, yes, he threatens to annihilate the world. If he combines the mother boxes and creates the unity, but also he's a dummy and like he he's going, he exists to be defeated. Like it's trying to have it both ways. And furthermore, his goal and really the plot overall, the actual plotting is sort of divorced from character development or character arcs and themes. And I know that, and, and I guess maybe that's, that's a tall order. Although I think if you're asking for four hours of your audience's time, you know, which we all know is longer, much longer than the average film, I think that it should get that granular so that, you know, when you're saying like, well, what is this, you know, what is Batman's story about in this? What is he going for? It's like, well, he's learning to take things on faith. Okay, well, that's nice. 
does that really relate to anything larger happening in the film? It's like, no, it's about a story about a guy trying to collect boxes. And that's fine. It moves the plot along. But I also feel like it doesn't really, for all the gravitas that Snyder wants to imbue in the film, I think that it's, it misses a lot more than it hits. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I still, I still think Steppenwolf is successful and maybe it's just because I can't divorce the 2017 film out of my head just because I kind of care and kind of understand him. And, you know, how many Marvel movies have we seen with villains that we don't really understand or care about whatever it is they're sure. doing? But I will say, you know, I think the film is successful in creating arcs for Cyborg and Flash. I don't think it's successful with anything to do with Superman. <laughs> I think that it's very clear that Zack Snyder doesn't really, I don't know. I think it's very telling that Henry Cavill was, you know, a little, not a holdout, but like not as vocal about getting the Snyder cut out there because it, you know, if I were him, I'd be really bummed too that like I got, you know, I finally landed the role of Superman and Man of Steel. What are we doing for the sequel? It's like, well, you're going to be hamstrung by like just looking sad the whole time because everyone's not going to be hamstrung, but you won't really get to have a character of your own. Like, yeah. let, like to go back to Batman v, v Superman, not only is half the film devoted to Batman, yeah, but also Superman's connection to humanity is very singular. It's basically, I relate to humanity because I like Lois Lane. Yeah. And for Zack Snyder, that is it. Like he is, for, for Zack Snyder, Superman is kind of this uncaring God figure which is great if you're making Watchmen and making telling a story about Dr. Manhattan, but that's not Superman. That's a deconstruction yeah. of Superman. If you're telling a Superman story, Superman like is supposed to represent certain ideals and I, you know, that make us feel good about America. Like that's just who he is. And like, you can say it's corny and he's a blue boy scout, whatever, but that's, that's the character. And I feel like Snyder reduces him to being like, he likes Lois Lane. And if Lois Lane dies, he'll kill us all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I, I have no rebuttal. Like they, they bring him back because he can punch real good. Um, I did like that twist on that whole sequence though, where, you know, cyborg sees a vision of the future. Aquaman says it's a bad idea. Batman is so um, consumed by guilt that he's like, we have to bring him back because like Batman's arc in this film is that he feels so freaking guilty that Superman. I, I screwed up so bad trying to kill <laughs> Superman, you guys. Oh, I feel bad. I didn't, I, made such I had just known that our moms had the same name. <laughs> yeah, it would have been fine. Well, so in speaking of undercutting and, and this is another example of like where the film adds more, but the add more is not actually additive, but you have this really nice scene between Lois Lane and Martha Kent about grief and about like having to get up and get out there and still live on with your life. And then it's like, what if Martha was actually Martian Manhunter? <laughs> it's like, what? It's yeah. like completely, like I was watching that scene and I was like, this is really touching. And I was like, and I know this wasn't shot, you know, later. I know this was shot before Zach's daughter died. So how serendipitous and like, man, it must've been really emotional to like cut the scene together and editing. And then it's like, and then she's Martian Manhunter. <laughs> Like, what? Oh, but what She's if she was actually Harry, Harry Lennox? <laughs> yeah. What if what if she was a superhero actually? And what if Martha Kent actually did not come back? Yeah. Like, what if oh, she didn't man. actually come? To... And what that's the reason for this, <laughs> right? And to me, like that's such a weird thing. Like, and I get that that Snyder's like, well, this is where my movies would have gone had I gone to make them. Yeah. But it's like it's such a weird thing to be like, how much teaser culture do you want to put into your movies? And I feel like you know Marvel, you know their weakest films were the ones that were constantly like, you know, the phase one films that were like constantly like, hey, we got to tease 
that this is all like Iron Man 2 mm-hmm. is a lot of teaser stuff. Like yeah. it's a lot of like, here's Black Widow. You don't know anything about her, but we're going to introduce her. And like, ooh, there's an Avengers initiative and you have to learn about that, you know? And and, and that stuff is just so de- detracting from the story you're trying to tell. And it actually is just, I think, ultimately better to be like, it's in the credit scene. If you yeah. want it, you can have it. <laughs> if not, take and leave, you can leave when the credits roll. But like, to me, it's like that sets it aside as its own little thing rather than trying to integrate it into your plot. Because when you try to integrate it into your plot, you get the scene that you have where mm. it's like, what if Martian Manhunter was here? Yeah. And listen, I don't begrudge Zach. I mean, you know, as he was putting this together, I was like, this is it. Like, this is my final DC film. You know, mm-hmm. I want to get everything in there that I really wanted to do. And he's since come out in interviews and said, this was a really big point of contention with Warner Brothers while he was finishing the cut. First of all, they didn't want him to shoot any new scenes. And second of all, they didn't want him teasing any future films. And he was like, eh, that's bullshit. And I, you know, I kind of respect him for that. Be like, you know what? You told me I could finish my cut of the film. This is what I wanted to do. So let me just do it. And, you know, you guys deal with it. The one concession he made was not including Green Lantern, because I guess Warner Brothers has big plans for that. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of fun to see that epilogue scene and that be it. And I also feel like he's he's kind of kneecapping himself by being like, here is all of what I had planned, because it's like, well, no, how would he how would he do it now if we already know? <laughs> like, I already told you everything I was going to well, do. I already told you everything I was going to do, but also like. I don't know, it just leads to a new hashtag, restore the Snyderverse. <laughs> yeah. And that'll be the new the new rallying cry. Um, it is, to, to, to your earlier point where you were talking about how people were like, oh, this will never, you know, this movie will never happen. You also wrote that when there was a different head of Warner Brothers at the time. Yeah, this was a couple yeah. heads ago. This was a couple heads ago. I forget which one was uh, outed for sexting with an actress. Yeah. Well, and now it's clear, you know, they just want to do their multiverse stuff, but also like the actors, like, you know, that epilogue is fun. And, but I did find it kind of funny to see like skinny Batman and like, you know, Ben Affleck dropped out of making his own solo Batman movie because of his own personal problems. He knew, you know, a friend told him, if you do this, you'll, you'll drink yourself to death. Uh, You know, he was not having, he signed on to play Batman because he thought it'd be fun for his kids. Lo and behold, the Batman movie he makes is Batman versus Superman, which he probably could not show his kids at the time because it's so violent and gritty and scary, frankly. So, you know, I think he, it's clear that he respects Zach and he came back and he shot those scenes, but I can't imagine you're going to get those actors to be like, yeah, no. you know, let's come back and do let's it. Let's go do it again. Well, and also I think from Warner Brothers perspective, there's no incentive for them to do it. I mean, no. this, there was an interview today with um, what, Ann Sarnoff. Is that the head of? Yeah, head, head of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, you know, we're not, you know, we're done. We're not, we're not making any more of these. And it would be sort of like, why, why? I mean, obviously this, this Snyder cut has been such a huge sensation on social media and what have you. And, First off, let's be clear. I mean, it yes, it is a sensation. Also, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Like this movie doesn't have to compete with anything. Like you're not yeah. going out to the theater to see anything. Like you are you have a it, it's a captive audience. But also, like Anne Sarnoff can read box office reports and Man of Steel and Batman v Superman did not perform as well as audiences didn't want it. They didn't no. want that take. So yes, there is a devoted fan base that does, but they're not the majority and there aren't enough of them to drive these movies up past a billion dollars. You know what does drive past a billion dollars of all goddamn things? <laughs> Joker. <laughs> of, all of, all, things. of all things, Todd Phillips' R-rated Joker movie made over a billion dollars which tells warner brothers we should just give our if if we have an we have a director who has a strong take on a superhero property let's just give it to them and see what happens and go that route 
rather than building an interconnected universe where we are now so drastically behind the curve, you know, from Marvel, we couldn't even ever hope to keep up. We'll keep the door open. I think that door is open in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, there is, um, uh, you know, there's nothing to say that these characters couldn't team up again. Nothing, yeah. you know, but it's clear that they are far more comfortable with something like Matt Reeves is the Batman than they are with like, well, how do we, you know, and, or just the recent news that they're going to let JJ Abrams produce and uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates write a black Superman, mm-hmm. you know, and just doing that rather than being like, but how does it connect to the universe? Just not worrying yeah. about it and being like, we have the IP. Let's just take these one at a time, which is probably the smarter move. Well, in reading that interview, I did find it interesting, though, because she does want a lot of interconnectivity, but in in relation to a multiverse. So she was like, you know, we want all these people to be, you know, the mandate is now if you're doing a movie, you also have to think about a spinoff for HBO Max. And she talked about like including Easter eggs to this and that. And it's very clear that this Flash movie is going to be the key to everything because it's going to introduce this multiverse idea. But that's how they can explain that, you know, Matt Reeves' The Batman exists in a different universe from Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, but uh uh-oh, it's a multiverse, so what if something slipped through? And they can have, like, a little nod here and a little nod there. Um, You know, I think, I was a little surprised to read that, though, that they, you know, she's trying to, she was talking about how, like, something they don't like that happened in the past was when those CW shows were so separate from what was happening in the movies. Um, so she wants more interconnectivity with like the HBO Max stuff, which I think could be a mistake. And, you know, with Warner Brothers, this will probably change in a year's time because they've they've changed their minds on what they're yeah, doing. With so, DC sometimes so it's Warner often. Brothers, is the, you know, is the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Yeah. So, you know, it, I think Marvel just got there at the right time in the right place and did it the right way. And had the they're right. In, I mean, they also trust that it was Kevin Feige's game. Yeah. Yeah. And and Warner Brothers never had that. They never had like this is our guy who like they thought it would be Snyder and then they thought it would be Jeff Johns and then like but they never really settled on you know a long term vision. Well, and Marvel was Marvel Entertainment. They were an independent studio. They independently right. financed and produced Iron Man. Yeah, uh, and they had sold off their biggest characters. Yeah. So until they get to the Avengers, well, no. When did Disney like outright buy Marvel Studios? They outright bought them like in 2011, 2010, 2011. But like by that point they were still like Avengers, I think is the last one made maybe Iron Man three is under Paramount. It, yeah. It was supposed to be Avengers and Iron Man three were under Paramount. And that was, you know, when Disney decided to distribute their movies, that was the deal. But then Disney like reneged on it and like paid Paramount some monies so that Disney, I do remember like the Avengers was the first movie of Marvel's marketed by Disney. Right. So I don't know. I, but, you know, again, they were in a unique, like with the first Iron Man and that Incredible Hulk movie and Iron Man 2 specifically, they were an independent studio producing their own movies with yeah. their own money mm-hmm. and like doing what they wanted to do. Right. There was no Paramount one really distributed them. Yeah. And also the stakes were relatively low. It's like, well, yeah. if this Iron Man 2 doesn't work out with Robert Downey Jr., eh, so it goes. Yeah. Whereas, like, when you bring Superman into the mix, just the stakes are. Are, I mean, every shareholder is watching it. And, and this isn't to say Marvel is better because they did it this no, way. It's just no. to say that like, this is why you compare them because 
DC could never do what Marvel did because they are not an independent studio. They are owned by, you know, Warner Brothers has the distribution rights to those big characters. Yeah. And as they're you owned say, by Warner Brothers, which is a subsidiary yeah. of Warner Media, which is a subsidiary of a- AT&T. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're it, the biggest characters in the world. And look how complicated that deal was for Marvel to get creative rights to Spider-Man. And even still, after one super successful movie, it fell apart. Like they were, they had to be and be put back together. Yeah. And then they had to put it back together. So these are really complicated things. And I think some people get in the weeds and like, you know, why are you comparing Marvel and DC? And you can't say Marvel movies are better because X, Y, and Z. I'm just saying like, it's incredibly hard to build out an interconnected universe. Mm -hmm. And we've seen so many other studios try. And these are studios trying Warner Brothers, Sony, Universal Pictures um, and failing. I think that really the... Marvel just kind of fell ass backwards into it by being yeah. a tiny independent studio producing their own movies. They were able to lay that foundation the way they wanted versus second guessing from studios and stuff, which is how you get, you know, the Snyder cut as we were talking about before we recorded is not Zack Snyder's pure unfiltered vision because they had to rewrite the script before production started because they were all Warner brothers was already nervous because he couldn't include the Batman Lois, you know, love story scene. So while it is a much more Zack Snyder vision than the 2017 version, if you go back and ask Zack Snyder in 2015, 2016, what are your plans for the first justice league movie? I bet it looks different. Yeah, no. And, and that's, and so, you know, it, I, I, I will say, I'm glad that he gets to make this film and I hope it brings him some modicum of peace and closure yes. uh, for the people that demanded it incessantly. I hope it gives them some peace and closure. I just feel that for me, it was it's not something I have really any desire to ever revisit. I don't, you know, I, I, there's a, I, I've seen people on Twitter being like, yeah, I'm going to watch it a third time. I was just like, <laughs> I, you know, I can't get enough of it. And it's like, if you like it, man, go, go for it. But I just, I got other things I want to watch. And uh you know, this, this film just didn't do anything for me. I mean, it has its moments, but I feel like it's still struggling against some fundamental flaws. It never overcomes. I will say, I do want to watch it again, kind of <laughs> just because, I mean, partly because I know my wife wants to see it, but the other part is because it is so long and so dense that I know there's stuff I'm forgetting that like happened within it. Mm. And I would just be curious to um, check that out again, although I'm not necessarily itching to do it right away. Yeah. If I ever did rewatch it, I would definitely rewatch it as chapters. Like I would watch a chapter yeah. and then take a break and then mm-hmm. watch a chapter, take a break. Cause at four hours, it's just enervating. Mm-hmm. Um, That's fair. All right. Well with that, let's uh, let's move into recently watched. What have you seen lately? Do we want to move on before talking about Jared Leto Joker scene? <laughs> You know, there's really nothing I really want to say about that dumb epilogue. I mean, it tells you what it is. I mean, again, it's just, it's teaser culture stuff and I really don't have any patience for it. Um, It kind of, like I wrote an article about the thing that really jumped out at me is like, yep, Superman's evil again. Like again, Superman is a problem to be solved. So it's like, I can't kill Superman again, but what if I made him evil? And like the way I have to make him evil is that Lois dies. And like, you can see how this has all been mapped out, but I just, I don't buy it. And it just, yeah. Wasn't there at one point like plans for like, or maybe it was just rumored, but like Brainiac would come into play or something? No, I don't know about Brainiac. I don't think, I think that may have just been a rumor. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe that was uh, a different one. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I I feel like it just further highlights how unique Heath Ledger's Ledger's Joker was. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like, it's, you know, oh, it's Joker and the Batman. This should be fun. And it's like, this doesn't do anything for me. (laughs) 
Well, and it also, again, just feels like, just like I killed Robin while Harley Quinn died in my arms. And he kills everyone. It's like, remember when Aquaman got murdered? Yeah. Remember when Harley Quinn got murdered? Yeah. I just, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I will say it's uh, fine. It's fine. (laughs) Actually, before we move into recently watched, we did promise the return of reader hot takes. So yes. if you like the show, uh, just visit us on iTunes, leave us a review along with your hottest take. Uh, this one, uh, so you haven't heard this yet, Adam. So I'm going to read this to you now. Do it. Listener hot take. Adam hates doing this show. <laughs> Evidence. <laughs> Evidence. He says his intro, howdy folks, and atro at Adam Chitwood in the exact same intonation every episode. So they must be pre-recorded clips so he can get off and on as fast as possible. <laughs> Seriously, though, I love your show and I look forward to listening to you more. Thanks, Linus's Blanket was the username on that. I will but, say I record those live every time. So you're welcome, first of you're all. Just, you're just hitting the mark. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I thought you'd right, enjoy that. I just kind of accidentally stumbled into the howdy folks and then people seem to enjoy that. Um, and also, I don't know if you've tried saying at Adam Chitwood with two A's there, but it's a little awkward to say. So I feel like there's only one way to say it. That doesn't sound um, silly, but no, I like doing the show. If we, if either Matt or I didn't like doing the show, we would have stopped a long time ago because <laughs> this has been going for eight years now coming up on nine. Cause our first episode was for the hunger games in 2012. Um, and we enjoy just, you know, bullshitting and, and ribbing each other. And uh, it still amazes me that anyone listens, listens to yeah, us for pleasure. It's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, I'm very grateful. Actually, we have, I'm, I'm checking right now. We have two more uh, hot takes. So I'm going to dive into these. Uh, one is from Captain Exploder. Uh, and their hot take is, all streaming services should follow the HBO Max model, where new films are only being streamed for a limited amount of time before leaving the service. This helps to create a sense of urgency to see the film similar to a theatrical release window. Otherwise, the movies always end up on an I'll watch it, but not today list. That's an interesting proposition for like, I I mean, think about it. Like, what if Netflix ever did that? Like, you can watch Mank, but only for 30 days, and then we don't know when it will be back. Like, do you think that would create more cultural conversation? I don't. Um, And my evidence is that I run a uh, top 10 movies on Netflix article that I update every Friday and invariably every Friday in the top 10 is whatever new, like, and especially recently, like just any new release, people are watching it. It's in their top 10 and it's not Mank. It's like deadly illusions or some, like some weird action. Is that a real thing? Or did you just make that? Deadly illusions is a real movie. That was like number three on Friday. Oh, wow. So, it's probably number one right now. Um, and I keep wondering how people are finding these movies on Netflix, but I think we have to remember that the, the large majority of Netflix subscribers are not cinephiles. They're just everyday people. And so they're not, you know, necessarily looking for the next J- David Fincher thing or whatever they are. I don't know. It just seems like people are going to that new release tab and like, okay, I'll watch this and I'll watch this. Even library titles that are new releases, like, um, you know, the BFG came on there recently. That was in the top 10 um the dark the first two dark knight movies from christopher nolan they were in the top 10 again but you never saw i think mank was in the top 10 once like its first year but there were some new releases that like cinephile centric kind of things like the irishman or mank that it doesn't seem like netflix subscribers as a very into yeah. But I do, I mean, I, I like the idea that it's there for a limited time on HBO Max. And I am hoping that once theaters come back, that Warner Brothers kind of pulls back on that. Because 
God, it would kind of suck to to have, you know, like the box office of like the Suicide Squad or something hamstrung by that. And, you know, I'm dying to see Godzilla versus Kong in a theater. And I'm definitely not watching Dune on my HBO Max. Yeah, app. Dune is sort of where I draw the line. Like, I'll, I like, you know, I, I mean, I'm hopeful, you know, hopefully we'll be seeing movies, you know, starting by May, but in theaters, you know, yeah. obviously. But Dune is sort of like, I, oh, I wouldn't want to see that on HBO Max. I want to see that in a theater. But I think for people like Netflix or Amazon who are making movies specifically for their streaming service, it just goes against their entire model to put to put it limited on their streaming service. I mean, that was Netflix's whole argument in the first place for not doing theatrical because they were like, you know, oh, our subscribers would riot if we had a movie in theaters and not on streaming the same day. And mm-hmm. they changed that for The Irishman and it was fine. No one cared. Um, right. But they're, they maintain that, you know, streaming is their number one priority. And it should be because Netflix isn't necessarily in the business of like putting movies in theaters. So, yeah, that's their model. All right. Um, and then our other hot take is from Jared Leto, Joker Jesus. <laughs> um, here's a hot take in honor of the Snyder Cut. So hot, it'll brand your body faster than a bat fleck batarang. <laughs> Batman Begins and The Dark Knight are the only good Batman. Nicholson's Joker feels like a standard performance for him only in clown makeup Batman Returns is okay but Keaton is sidelined and it pays more respect to Burton's sensibilities than it does the comic books Jim Carrey's Ace Ventura version of the Riddler is terrible as is Tommy Lee Jones's uninspired Two-Face Batman and Robin speaks for itself with its campy foolishness Dark Knight Rises is mostly good but can't stick the landing in the third act lastly and most obvious Zack Snyder just doesn't understand Batman or the rest of the DC heroes Okay, well, you know what? I, I, what do you think is the best Batman film? Because you rank them, and I rank them, and there's a it, ranking on the site. If I'm being like fully and totally honest, it's a tie at number one. Um, but for the purposes of ranking, number one is The Dark Knight. But just by a hair, like a tiny hair, Batman Returns is at number two. I think yeah. Batman Returns is a fantastic film. Um, but I don't, I don't disagree that it does sideline Batman, but like the villains are like Catwoman and Penguin are so good in that movie. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny. The Dark Knight also kind of sidelines Batman. <laughs> it does. So this is a recurring theme. I would say like Batman Begins and maybe uh, Burton's Batman and maybe 66 Batman are the only ones that are like actual, like this movie is entirely about Batman, but I don't love Burton's first Batman movie. I think it's fine. Um, but I do love the 66 Batman movie. I think that oh, 66 perfect. Batman is, is so much fun. The world leaders get turned into sand. <laughs> yeah. Trying to throw a, a bomb away. It's so much fun. He has bat shark repellent. I guess what if a, you're actually purely like, what is the best Batman movie about Batman? An argument could be made that it's mask of the phantasm. Mm, yeah. That's and, and you know, that film has its, I, I like that film a lot. Um, yeah. It's just, it sort of depends on what you want from Batman. And I think we also have to accept that Batman's been around for, for like 80 years now yeah. so it's it, you know there are different kinds of batman i think to say like it's not the batman from the comics well the batman from the comics has changed drastically over you know decades yeah. i mean sometimes he's very sorrowful sometimes he's you know dark avenger sometimes he's kind of light and campy you know it, it just depends um you know what you want from your batman i mean there are certain things about the character that are evergreen but um, it just, it changes. And I'm, but that being said, like, I'm very interested to see what Matt Reeves does with the character. Yeah. Yeah. I will say having lived through so many different Batman movies uh, and anticipating sequels to all of those, the conversation invariably in any sequel is who's the villain. It's not what's Batman doing in the next movie. Right. So, exactly. 
Exactly. No, yeah, it is like, well, what's Batman's struggle here? And usually that struggle has to be defined by the villain. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the Dark Knight does that really well because Batman has a code and he thinks that they're, you know, he has escalated things and the Joker is the result of that escalation, which is, you know, makes it, you know, one of the reasons it's such a strong war on terror film that by virtue of escalation, you can only escalate things further. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I think... I think that's a scorching hot take. I think that I will defend Batman Returns to my dying day. I think Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is one of the best superhero characters in history, um, or I guess supervillain. Um, but I don't, in, in terms of like Batman movies about Batman, I don't necessarily think it's entirely wrong. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, keep those hot takes coming. We'll keep uh, discussing them on air. Uh, with that, let's move into Recently Watched. What have you seen lately? Um, I was a little late on uh, picking this one up but finally watched Pretend It's a City, having heard so many good things about it. Um, it's essentially a documentary series on Netflix, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. It's seven episodes. They're all about a half hour long. Um, but it's really just, it, so Martin Scorsese has been friends with Fran Leibovitz, the author, um, for a super long time. And uh, they talk about on the docuseries how like they met each other at parties all the time in New York City and always found each other talking to each other in a corner in the room. So he had wanted to make a documentary about her for a long time and finally did. But the pretended city is not necessarily like, here's what she did in her career and here's how it went and here's what happened. It's more just a series of conversations that are just really engaging and compelling and super dryly funny. Um, it's like being at a cocktail party with Martin Scorsese and Friendly Woods and just like listening in on a conversation between the two of them. And they touch on, you know, a number of topics largely considered, largely centered around New York City. So, you know, they talk about gentrification. They talk about um, like books and bookstores and, you know, the rise and fall of bookstores and, you know, where people get books. They talk about film. They talk about sports. They talk about, you know, health and smoking. They talk about everything. Um, And it's just really engaging and fun. It's a very simple, easy watch. And you know, they've got, uh, I mean, it's mostly Fran. Martin Scorsese doesn't really, I, I call him Martin because we're best friends. Um, Scorsese doesn't really put himself into the film, into the series that uh, often. So it's mostly, it's largely her opinions on topics and, and they're very funny and very biting and very witty. Um, so I don't know, I had a really good time with it. It's just a really easy watch and it's an easy thing to like, because it doesn't necessarily like connect or there's not like a chronological aspect to the seven episodes so you know just fire one up and just kind of enjoy it and uh there's it's very low pressure um uh tv watching so i enjoyed it uh for me i'm gonna recommend uh or i mean recommend but also i recently watched uh wolf walkers which is nominated for best animated feature uh on apple tv plus and uh it's just great it's from i think it's for the same director it's or same studio as a uh, secret of kells um which is a film i didn't really go for um so that was kind of my re- my reticence against for for seeing wolf walkers but i'm kind of mad at myself that i waited this long because it's great uh it takes place a few hundred years ago in kilkenny ireland and basically uh, a young girl and her father have come to this uh sort of small village to rid the village of wolves so that the village can expand. And uh, one day she discovers that um, the there is living among the, wor- the wolves a wolf walker, which is a young girl named Maeve, who she and her mother, when they sleep, 
they transform into wolves. Like their spirit creates a wolf that can run around and be wolves. And it's just, it's a really, um, I'm not selling the plot well. And it's, it is kind of a hard film to describe, even though it is just, it's a, it's, it is a PG film. It's a film that kids could, could easily watch and enjoy. But, you know, what really jumped out at me is that the film is so good at showing sort of empathy as magic that the, the way that the way magic in this film is such a strong metaphor for, for empathy and, you know, moving between the worlds of humans and wolves and the film itself has a metaphor about the conflict between England and Ireland. And there's just a lot going on that's very thoughtful and it's gorgeously animated. Um, it's just really, I was really swept up in it and it really, I, I was, I was kind of amazed at how much it sort of sucked me in um, and how, how much it sort of captured my interest. And like, you know, by the third act, I had no idea what was going to happen next. Um, it was really well done. So yeah, if you haven't seen Wolf Walkers yet, I, I highly recommend it. It's on my list. I definitely need to check it out. It's on Apple TV plus. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. <laughs> That sounded pre-recorded. That <laughs> sounded sounded pretty pre-recorded to me. Damn. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.